broadcasting live from the RNR studios in Las Vegas, Nevada. It's the premier destination for an inside look into the Las Vegas Raiders. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor. Presented by Tequila Embajador. What's good, Raider Nation? Welcome back to Raider Nation Radio, 920 AM on a Wednesday. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsignor, brought to you by Tequila Embajador. Um, Demond, do we, is, uh, is George, uh, on? Yes, he is. Oh, okay, great. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, technical, some tech, te- you know, because of COVID-19, uh, have to do things a little bit differently sometimes on, on the radio. Uh, but it's all good. Uh, we're, we're all still figuring out our way and can't wait for things to get back to normal. Uh, but with that, uh, I want to go out to the Raider Nation, uh, guest line and welcome in from Pro Football Focus, uh, George Shirori. Um, and George, first of all, you could follow him at PFF underscore George. Uh, George, thanks for spending some time with us in the hub. How are you doing, my friend? Doing well. I'm always excited to talk to uh, some people on the on the West Coast, on the best coast. I know you guys aren't as coastal as you know it used to be, but um, I grew up in the days of uh, you know the Oakland Raiders. So um, this is exciting, man. I'm, I'm pumped to be here. Very nice. Where's where's home for George Shirori? I was born and raised in Menlo Park, um, California, which is just a little south of. Uh, of Oakland and San Francisco. Um, and, uh, I then migrated to, to LA and lived here for a while. I'm actually here at the moment. And now I'm in, uh, now I'm in Cincinnati where PFS HQ is. Very nice. Very nice. Well, say, give my regards to my, uh, beautiful, basically hometown uh, of Los Angeles. I've been in, I've been in Las Vegas now for about a year and a half. So, uh, after many, 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 many years, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, but, uh, glad to have you. And um, wanted to bring you on today because I know, uh, and I, you know, this time of year, uh, as we creep closer <laughs> to the regular season, and it can't get here soon enough because uh, we're all, you know, uh, uh, trying to find storylines to get us through to that, 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 to the finish line <laughs> before the real stuff starts. Uh, but what I'm always fascinated about this time of year, uh, and as we start projecting forward, not just looking back, but projecting forward is what we think about how many games teams are going to win, uh, who the best quarterbacks are going to be, um, breakout players, that sort of thing. It's kind of a fun exercise. Uh, and I know, and I'm a, I love pro football focus, so I know that when you guys make predictions uh, and forecasts, it's not just instinctual or what your eyes are telling you. You, you drill down in the numbers and you get a deep look uh, into things and make a very, very educated re, uh, uh, you know, um, guess as a result or forecast as a result. Um, when it comes to the top 10 quarterback list that you guys put out, how, how difficult uh, is it? I'm sure the first couple are fairly easy, you would think, but when you start getting down to 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, I'm sure it gets pretty hard at that point. Yeah, it definitely does. And, um, yeah, on the PFF forecast, which is the, um, kind of analytics and betting podcast that, uh, myself and, and Eric Eager host, we, we each kind of gave our, our top 10. And there's a lot of similarities. Patrick Holmes is at the top and there's no question about it. And it's clearly he's in a tier by himself. Um, but really one of the toughest things about ranking quarterbacks is not just the ordinal ranking, but it's that, the difference that the space between each spot isn't the same. You know, the space between Mahomes and whoever's number two is big. The space between number two and whoever's number three is not very big. And so you have these tiers that are, you know, that are hard to really, um, you know, capture within that ranking. And so as you get down to like eight through 13, 
you know, in my opinion, that's one big tier. And so the difference between all those, you're really picking nits at that point. And the way I kind of classified it, and we just did this on our podcast, it'll drop uh, Wednesday evening, is, um, you know, what are the tiers? What should those be? And for me, if you're in the same tier, it's going to be really hard for me to say you're that much better than any other quarterback in that tier. On a given day, you could be, but I'm not that confident that you will be over the long haul. And so that's what makes it so tough is when you're doing, you know, a ranking one through 10, everyone sees the space between each one as being a pretty big, pretty big gap. And really what you're trying to communicate is now, actually, I think this group of quarterbacks are kind of all clumped together. And I think that's the case really for like quarterbacks eight through maybe 13. You can maybe even extend it through like 15 right now in the NFL. Well, it's so funny that you mentioned the gap between whatever space you're talking about. Uh, you go back. I was just I, for some reason I was I thought about the 1979. This is so so random, but it kind of proves your point. Uh, the 1979 NBA draft. Magic Johnson was number two, one, and a guy by the name of David Greenwood, who was a pretty fine player in college, was number two. That's a dramatic fall off, but it can happen mm-hmm. from time to time when you're talking about you know maybe that number seven quarterback and the number eight quarterback. There could be a very very steep fall off between the two. But before I get to that part of it, um, you you mentioned that Patrick Mahomes is on a level all his own, okay? And we can all see that and we all understand that. Uh, In your years of doing this and your years of analyzing that, how often is that the case? Um, How often is one just so superior to everybody else um, that that it's like they're almost in a different kind of a universe? Well, I think that on a year-to-year basis, it, it's not always, you know, there's, Aaron Rodgers was, for the most part last year, you know, he had really separated himself, I think, from the rest of the quarterbacks in terms of how he's performing. But over the course of, like, seasons, I don't think we see that very often, you know, if at all. Um, and I think there are a couple that come to mind. Look, I think Brady had a stretch where, you know, he was number one and you could make a case that he was in tier by himself. I think Peyton. Um, there you I go. Think, exactly. Yeah. You know, right. Like had a couple of years where you're like, yeah, like I think he could be a tier one, but there was, they always kind of had each other, you know, um, mm-hmm. Manning and Brady did. Um, you know, I think, I think uh, Marino is a guy that he was probably in a tier by himself. Um, for, for a good part of his career, I mean, he was amazing. Um, I think you can look at like Young and Montana um, as having stretches like that. So I, I don't think it's often. Um, I think Mahomes is truly generational and special. Um, and we could be witnessing a guy who, you know, if it's all said and done, if he keeps doing this, man, like I, I can't, I don't like to be hyperbolic, but you could look at it in 10 years and go, even if you look at history, he might be in a tier of one. Um, that's how good he's, he's been. And what's so interesting about that, George, is that it's not like it's chopped liver everywhere else. In fact, you can make a case that we are in – are we in a golden age of quarterbacks in terms of the depth here? Um, you know, at least maybe through six, seven, eight, uh, one through eight maybe. Um, then, you know, it, it – it just seems like there's a lot of good quarterbacks, at least from my perspective. Am I right about that or, or wrong about that? So for, I guess to, to say that you're the best, clearly, amongst a pretty darn good group of, of quarterbacks um, is not that's, – that's, that's saying something. 
I think it is. I think we're in the golden age of offense, um, which definitely, well, I don't think I know. Um, <laughs> I know that we're in a golden age of offense. Yeah. And a lot of that is, you know, rules and, and athleticism and um, all of those things. So um, on that one hand, I think you're right where it's like, okay, it's easier, not easier, but like quarterbacks just look better than they've ever looked before. On, uh, on the other side, though, I'll make this kind of case, which is there is this weird um, dichotomy between good quarterbacks right now where they're either at the twilight of their career, you know, we just saw Breeze go off in the sunset. Um, look, Brady and Rodgers are still, in my opinion, top three quarterbacks, um, but they're, they're not getting any younger, and at some point they will retire. And Mahomes is the first young guy who's been able to go, you know what, I'm great. There are a lot of young guys out there where you're not sure yet. And I think we are maybe taking for granted that everyone should immediately, you know, figure it out. And could Josh Allen challenge Patrick Mahomes? Yeah, potentially. Could Trevor Lawrence, could Zach Wilson from this year's class, you know, or Justin Fields? Like, absolutely. Joe Burrow, Justin Herbert. Um, there's a lot of young quarterbacks where I'm not sure they've given the chance to grow into that yet. So, I, Mahomes may be taking advantage of that a little bit. And I, so I'm kind of like, you know, talking around the ways where we could see a tier of one where there are three, four quarterbacks in there. I'll throw a guy out there who I don't like to give airtime to, but, um, you know, Deshaun Watson on the field, I think was approaching that tier one. Like, I think that would have been the biggest question with like that tier one is does Watson make it? He was amazing on the field last year. So, um, I think there's a lot of nuance there, but there's no denying that, like, if you want to watch quarterback play, you pick the right year because it's going to be awesome this year and the next year and, you know, for the foreseeable future. We're talking to George uh, Surrey um, from Pro Football Focus. Okay, um, there's so much that I want to unpack here. And uh, I've talked about this quite a bit on my show. It's talked about a lot last year. Talked about this to NFL people. Um, you mentioned Joe Burrow. You mentioned Justin Herbert. Uh, you know, they, before Burrow's injury, he was playing great. Justin Herbert speaks for itself. Tremendous young quarterback. How much of an adjustment are these guys about ready to face bringing fans back into the stands? Um, it just seems like, you know, what they did was not easy whatsoever, but it was easier given the circumstances of not having to go into Seattle, of not having to go into Kansas City and New Orleans and, and so on and so forth, where, you know, you've got fans wrecking everything that you do. And, you know, uh, a 30-year playbook might not even make the trip because, you know, how are you going to communicate it at the line of scrimmage? Um, it, are you accounting at all for any sort of an adjustment in that regard? Uh, and by the way, I guess the dog here really wants to, to make his, his feelings felt on this as far as home field advantage goes. Um, All good. You know, it's interesting from a, you know, and this is really interesting, you know, especially for people in Vegas who've been able to bet on games for a while. Um, it plays a huge role in that, you know, where you see spreads um, of games generally get, you know, two, two and a half point, you know, the standard everyone thinks in their mind is three. They usually round up, but it's really, you know, more of like two, two and a half points to the home team. Um, and you see that bear out, you know, over the course of, of history, um, where home field is you know, generally worth in that two to two point five range. But it, it, as you said, it differs by stadium. Um, Seattle, uh, Arrowhead, um, those stadiums are more three, three and a half. Whereas, you know, you go to Los Angeles and you play the Chargers, and man, you could make an argument that any popular 
road team is going to have an advantage. Um, you know, Steelers Nation travels pretty well. Um, this year, I think there will be a, a, a big pivot back. Last year, we saw almost no home field advantage, um, and, and road teams were incredibly successful. And this year, I'm anticipating that it may even be a little stronger than it was in 2019 because there's, as you said, a year's worth of not having it. But then also, I think there's a renewed excitement for fans to go to the games for their teams. So I think you see more, you know, vociferous fans of the home team in the stadium. And we know that that, you know, by and large impacts um, you know, refereeing to a certain degree it definitely impacts your offensive line. Um, so younger quarterbacks with an offensive line that may not be particularly, um, you know, cohesive and have a ton of continuity will impact them there. And I'd say the last thing, and I got this tidbit from, you know, Chris Collinsworth, who I had the pleasure of working for, obviously, but also with, I work with Sunday Night Football um, every single week. And, you know, he was up there in the booth and he would say, you know what, I can hear the quarterbacks call. Yep. And for smart quarterbacks, that's an advantage, man. Like their ability to just talk to all the players and code <laughs> at the line of scrimmage, you know, that means when Aaron Rodgers walks into your stadium, it's like he's playing at home. And that's not something that you want to face. Um, and so I think that's another thing where you'll see really good quarterbacks as well have, you know, a little bit of a tougher road to hoe with traveling to those places where it's harder to communicate. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And having traveled all last year, I heard it. And uh, now I have a better appreciation for Derek Carr and his command of the offense because you you literally heard him operating it at that level uh, at uh, from that vantage point, and it was pretty impressive to see. Which brings me to my next question uh, about Derek Carr. Um, where exactly did Derek Carr um, fall in your in your uh, uh, rankings forecasting of the quarterbacks uh, going into the twenty twenty one season? Yeah, so I he is in that eight to thirteen slash fifteen, wherever you want to cut it off. I think you can make some arguments for or against it that tier. Um, so I have, um, and, and you know, look, Eric disagrees me a little bit here or there. I think we're fairly similar in where we had Carr, um, and I feel like you know PFF's talent in general, our analysts in general, all kind of feel similarly. Which is, so I had um, Mayfield at nine, Cousins at ten. And to me, both of those guys, the reason I have them ahead of Carr is their good plays are a little more frequent in, okay, their propensity to throw downfield and their execution on those throws um, is good enough to where they're a little bit higher. And I think, so I think their ceiling for play is a little bit higher. If I'm thinking about them going into a game, I go, okay, their best game um, is going to happen a little more frequently than Derek Carr's will. And Derek Carr, so Derek Carr is right after that. I'd probably go Stafford and then Carr. Um, and both those guys are interesting because I think they're very different. Carr is one of the most accurate quarterbacks in the NFL. He makes some incredible throws. But there is, you know, there's a little bit of that high-end play that just doesn't show up enough. And Stafford is interesting where he has a ton of high-end play, but the consistency is not there. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. It's like different ways to skin a cat. Um, you know, it was, there was some encouraging stuff with Derek last year where 
And by the way, Derek Carr was on the Chris Collinsworth podcast this uh, this week. I recommend checking it out. Phenomenal. Oh yeah, we we've been playing sound from it today, yeah. and uh, it was it was excellent. It was really good. He's a he's an insightful kid um, in a, in a lot of ways, um, and I think that totally oh, yeah. came across in the interview. Uh, he he's a fascinating guy. You know, it's 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 always great to you know look. We're gonna sit here on our couches for better or for worse <laughs> and and you know pick apart these guys games and what's what needs to be understood is like we're talking about a job where there's 32 openings you know yep. so all of these guys you know it's like talking about an nba player on the bench like oh i could beat that guy no you can't rock <laughs> okay <laughs> he would dri- dribble you off the court in about five minutes um and uh so you know you're really picking nits with a lot of these guys but you know with car last year there were these games where they, he opened it up a little bit and threw it downfield and, you know, to me, in, increasingly doing that, not just deep throws, like 20-plus yard shots, but those, like, 15- to 20-yard throws. And I do think a little bit of that is finding weaponry that can do that. You know, Darren Waller is amazing, but he's definitely more of a short-area guy. Um, you know, definitely the hope was that Henry Ruggs can grow into that. You know, everyone kind of thinks of him as only a speedster going vertical, but he can go horizontal, too. Um, we saw that at Alabama. One of the routes that he dominated was the deep over. And that would be a, a route that if, you know, they can bring that into that offense and can be continually successful, like, that's a throw that if Derek starts making, man, he can really jump into that top ten. I, like, I don't think the difference between he or Mayfield or Cousins, um, you know, or even Ryan Tannehill, who's put up amazing numbers and makes a lot of big-time throws, um, is that is that drastic? You know, it can be closed any given Sunday. So that's where I have Carr right now, and I think you know um, it's interesting because it puts it puts the Raiders in a precarious situation this year. Where man, if you can hit that eight, top eight quarterback, that's exciting. Could be a playoff team. But if I'm in the bathroom at 15, I don't know. Yeah, there's no question about that. And and, and getting to know uh, Derek uh, as as I have, um, you know, over the last year two years. You know, if you look last year, uh, I think they doubled up their 20-plus yards touchdown, and a lot of that was via the air. Um, and so, you know, going into last year, there was a lot of criticism. He doesn't throw the long ball, he doesn't throw the long ball, he doesn't throw the long ball. And and just from my perspective, if you're a quarterback, you have to have confidence that the other guy's going to – there's going to be somebody on the other side of that throw that's going to make the, ca- the catch. It's going to be there, um, you know, where where – he's supposed to be, uh, so on and so forth. And I never have gotten the uh, feeling that, that Derek Carr is going to just do that to satisfy, you know, Vinny up in, you know, the, the third, the third deck screaming at him that you got to throw the ball downfield, show us that you can throw the ball downfield. I think when he feels like there's somebody there to catch it, he's going to start doing that. And he did that last year. And I think, you know, if, if, like you said, if rugs, um, uh, can, can take that step forward that the Raiders are expecting, I think you're going to see that, uh, even more, which, which brings me to my next question. Um, I, I still think that in a weird sort of a way, I think Derek Hart's football is the best football is still ahead of him. And I think that's partly on him, but it's partly on the Raiders for putting to put a good team around him. I think we saw last year with better talent that he took a step forward in his game. And I think that that can continue if the talent around him uh, is, is better. As he hits 30 um, and starts getting into that kind of wheelhouse now for, for quarterbacks, the you know the where you're sort of in your prime mentally and, and physically, can he take his another step forward uh, as a quarterback in the NFL? It's 
such a, uh, it's a good question. I, you know, normally I think you look at a guy at, at age, you know, in the thirties and you go, yeah, we kind of know who he is. Um, but you know, there's some, some reasons to believe, um, that he hasn't had necessarily the greatest, um, you know, set of circumstances where if you get that right set of circumstances and look, I point to John Gruden who, I wouldn't hire him to be my GM based on what he's done, but I'd sure as hell hire him to be my head coach. I mean, his offense, it's good. He knows what he's doing offensively, and he doesn't have the greatest pieces around him, and they have been a top 10, top 5 offense at times. So can can Carr continue to, to improve? I believe so. I, I really do think so. Does that mean I think his ceiling is a top 5 quarterback? Mm, I, I don't. Um, you know, I don't think that tier one or two is, is in his deck of cards. Um, or it, you know, if it is, it's, it's a very, very, um, uncommon event. Um, but I think the cool thing about cars, don't tell him that, you know, I think he's a, he's a pretty growth mindset guy, which is what you want. And, um, you know, you can make a long run in the playoffs. I mean, heck, Nick Foles isn't that guy either. And, you know, you win a Super Bowl with that guy. And I think the thing that I would look at with Carr is, he is certainly capable of making those really impressive throws. And it's about finding them a little more consistently. And part of that is the scheme. Part of that is the players getting open. You can't make throws that aren't there. Right. So from that perspective, you know, I, I agree with you. Um, I'm a growth mindset guy too. I'm never going to, I'm never going to say someone can't improve, um, especially if they're willing to work at it. So yeah, I'm going to agree with you there. Well, it's kind of ironic because, you know, when I, I, I was in Los Angeles covering the Rams when John Gruden took over, uh, you know, with the Raiders in the second go around. And all you heard was John Gruden was going to immediately put Derek Carr on the first bus out of town to go get his KG savvy veteran that he prefers. And four years later, Derek Carr has survived all of that. And the irony being, and this could play out exactly this way, is that that cagey veteran, savvy veteran that John Gruden ends up getting is none other than Derek Carr, who will have spent five years under John Gruden to get there. Because I, you, you look at Brad Johnson, you look at uh, Rich Gannon, guys who were 34, 35 when John Gruden, when they came into his life, and you know they go to a Super Bowl, and the Raiders were good with 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 Gannon at that stage of his career. So in this weird sort of a way, the first guy that everyone expected to be out of town when John Gruden got here might be the last one standing, and the best still might be to come. So it's fascinating to keep an eye on. Or they could get rid of him tomorrow to go get Aaron Rodgers. So it's just it could go either way, and that's what's so fascinating about this. But George, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Really, really appreciate it. Hope to get you back on uh, here uh, at some point. Enjoy California, uh, and we'll talk to you down the road, my good friend. Hey, I really appreciate you having me on. Enjoy the desert, and I will certainly say hi to uh, LA for you here. Thank you, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Uh, that was that was a fascinating uh, conversation uh, with George uh, Surrey uh, um, from uh, Pro Football Focus. Uh, go check out Pro Football Focus. I always tell you guys that uh, it's worth the thirty four dollars or so per month. Um, you get, especially now coming up with the season, and if you want to get into. Um, it's George Sorori from Pro Football Focus. If you want to get into the nuts and bolts 
of of what makes good teams, what makes good players, what you're looking for, not just what your eyeballs are telling you, but what's a lot of the numbers and the numbers behind the numbers mean. Um, Pro Football Focus is definitely your go-to. Uh, you're in the huddle with Vinny Monsignor, brought to you by Tequila and Bahadur. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. I didn't think it or know it uh, prior to him announcing it. Uh, when someone told me, I was I was shocked, not in a good or bad way. I was just shocked, you know. I just like, oh, wow, I didn't know, you know. And and once, uh, once I talked to him and, uh, you know, kind of heard his voice and things like that, um, things, things were, I wasn't as confused anymore about uh, what was going on in his mind. So, um, our team has been, uh, all for, you know, having his back. That doesn't mean everyone agrees with the lifestyle or agrees with that, but we live in a country nowadays, like people think if you don't agree, then you can't love one another and have their back. And like, that is the farthest thing from the truth, you know? And, and so there are some guys that have raised a question or two, but, they all say without a doubt we have his back and he's our brother. So if you want to mess with him, you have to go through us kind of a thing. And that's what family does is family covers one another. And so uh, we have Carl's back and I hope that, I hope that no one makes it difficult for him, you know, and I'm talking about the outside coming in because inside of our building, he's going to, he's going to be loved just like uh, he's always been loved. Just like everyone on our team is always treated. That's Derek Carr talking about, um, the Raiders, himself included, having Carl Nassib's back. Um, Carl Nassib, obviously, a couple of weeks ago, um, announced and became, in doing so, the first uh, player in the NFL to openly um, come out as a, as a, as a gay man. And, um, you know, as, as Derek said, you know, you're going to... Does it make everyone understand all of the, you know... Uh, it... it you're going to have different feelings. You're just going to have different feelings. It's just, you, you'd be um, less than truthful if you didn't acknowledge that. But the key is, is that everyone loves him uh, in that locker room and everyone supports him and everyone has his back. And really that's all you can ever uh, ask for. Um, I, you know, I, I know this covering uh, professional sports, having worked for a professional sports team, you know, it's not like all these guys hang out <laughs> after practice together uh, or, or, you know, hang out in general. You know what I'm saying? Some do, there's no question about it. And you, you go, you know, there's pockets of guys that, um, that are, that are friends. They may live in the same area. They have barbecues together and, and, you know, that, that sort of a thing. But, um, you know, there's 54 players on a NFL football team and a bunch of other practice squad players. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, just like, do you hang out with everyone that you work with? No, probably not. It doesn't mean you don't like them. Um, but you have your family to go to, you have your thing to go to. You, you want to get away from work sometimes. And even some of the people that you work with, not that you don't like them. It's just that you have a separate life. Um, the key is that as, as, as Derek Carr talked about, They've got his back, and that's um, that's that's the best way um, to be able to be able to handle that. Uh, and I and I think that Derek Carr is genuine on that. I don't anticipate any problems, um, you know, w- with the Raiders dealing with that. Is it different? Of course, it's different. It's the first time any player has ever uh, made that kind of an announcement. Uh, so there's going to be, you know, uh, questions. I'm sure. 
And not everyone's going to feel the same exact way. That's just the way life works. Uh, but as, as long as everyone respects each other, that's all that really matters, to be honest with you. Uh, and what everyone does on their on their off time is what they do on their off time. It doesn't, it's nobody else's business. Uh, by the way, just want to let you guys know that, um, you know, Embajador Tequila, our great uh, sponsor, um, along with uh, Demon Rum, is uh, if you ever if you get out to Salud Mexican Bistro and Tequila Ria, uh, which is over at eight one two five West Sahara, Sahara Avenue uh, here in Las Vegas, uh, every Sunday from one p.m. to five p.m. it's the Latin Party Brunch, live music, dancing, great food and drinks. Uh, this week they're featuring uh, the Latin percussion sounds uh, of Las Vegas's own Steve Weiss from Zumanity Recycled Procession and Broadway Stomp. Uh, so salute Mexican Bistro and Tequileria, 8125 West Sahara Avenue, Latin Party Brunch every Sunday from 1 p.m. to 5 p.m. Great food, great music, and of course, uh, with Embajador uh, and Demon, uh, great great drinks. So um, yeah, interesting to hear from, from Derek Carr, uh, his thoughts uh, about that. It's a it's, it's different. It's the first time this has ever happened. And, you know, you're going to have, um, you know, you're just not 54 different personalities, 54 different people, and you know, not including the, the practice squad. As of right now, it's 90 players, you know, on the roster. I heard a story uh, years ago, uh, not too long ago, but, but fairly uh, a few years ago, let's put it that way. And it was a star NBA player who will remain nameless. And the story came from an assistant coach on the team. And this kind of talks about how it's all just really about respect. Um, you know, uh, whether you're talking about a team working in an office, your coworkers, uh, whether you like them, don't like them, whatever uh, the case might be, as long as there's respect, that's really all you can uh, ask for and expect and demand for that matter. doesn't mean you have to like everybody. Anyway, so it's a, it's the day of a game. And the star player who is in the Hall of Fame, by the way, walks into the locker room, walks to the middle of the locker room, and starts pointing at teammates. I hate you. I dislike you. I don't ever want to see you. You or your wife, your kids, you know, one after another. I don't want to spend any time with you. And he's just pointing around in the locker room, just saying this to all of his teammates. Didn't want to have anything to do with any of them. Didn't like them. None of that. And he summed it up by saying this. But when we walk into this locker room, we're a family. And I got every one of yours back. And that's how we're going to roll. And it was like this whole, yeah, everyone was like, yeah, you know. So, because at first they're like, his teammates are looking at him going, where is this going, man? You don't like me? What, you, know, that, you know, and, and, but he was trying to prove the point or trying to make the point that don't matter. doesn't matter what I think about you or what you think about me for that matter. It's how we function as a team, um, whatever the job might be, you know, whether you work in a factory, um, you know, uh, an office, whatever the case might be where it takes teamwork for the job to get done at a high level. It's great to think that everybody gets along and that everybody's best friends and that everybody agrees with everybody's lifestyle, whatever it might be. That's not reality. 
what is reality, what is important is that everybody has respect for each other, knows their boundaries, um, doesn't try to get into anybody else's business, just gives everyone the freedom to be who they are away from work and whatever, as long as you're, when you're at work, uh, it's all on the up and up. And that's, and that's now come to find out that the player that I'm talking about, he, he didn't hate any of those guys. And it seems he actually kind of loved them. Right. And uh, most of them anyway, I'm sure there was a couple of guys that he didn't particularly like. That's just the way it goes. You'd be shocked, shocked sometimes if you've ever found out like, who got along with one another and who didn't get along with one another, you'd never be able to tell it necessarily on the court because honestly, it's all about, you know, what happens on the court. I covered the Los Angeles Lakers when Shaquille O'Neal and Kobe Bryant started out as big brother, little brother, great friends to, I'm not going to say they literally hated each other, but there was, serious serious issues with that relationship and as reporters we would walk into the locker room and you could feel the tension and i remember talking to some of their teammates and what teammates would say is like you know it's it's like your mom and dad are arguing and you're not quite sure like you don't want to seem like you're taking any sides you don't want you just feel the tension you know mom and dad are arguing oh gosh you know um it's just it's you have to deal with that and kobe and Shaq, for whatever reason and i think sometimes maybe a lack of leadership from phil you know just phil jackson not being able to read that situation correctly and not being able to sit i always felt like if if pat riley was the coach of the Lakers, that would have gotten squashed and they would have gotten on the same page and they would have been able to coexist further and longer. But, you know, that's not how it all played out. But the point being is there was a stretch of time where it was almost like a hatred for each other. That's how high tensions were. You know, Kobe looked at Shaquille O'Neal like, you know, um, and, and, and what kind of not started it, but how it got to that point in some ways anyway, was when Phil Jackson took over uh, the Lakers, he shrewdly at that time understood, I got to show love to Shaq. I got to let, cause Shaq was one of those type of dudes. So, you know, you slapped him on the butt, you, you gave him love, you put an arm around his shoulder. Um, you, you, you made him understood that this is your team and I got your back. Um, he was going to run through a brick wall for you. If you didn't, it could be trouble. And part of the way of expressing that to Shaq, Phil looked over at Kobe, the co-star of the team by that point. Remember, Shaq and Kobe had been together, what, three years by the time Phil arrived on the scene? So they had had some years together. And, and Phil, in order to kind of further cement that, Shaq, you're the guy, this is your team, you know, you got my support – he treated Kobe completely different. And why? It's because he understood that Kobe being mature beyond his years and smart beyond his years. And and Shaq's a very smart guy as well, but it was just different. They were different, two different people. He knew Kobe would be able to handle the harsh treatment. You know, it was like, I'm going to love up Shaq. And part of that is going to be, you know, really being heavy handed with Kobe. And so, that occurred and, and it worked well because Kobe understood. He was like, okay, I get it. Uh, and, and Shaq, you know, felt the love and, and performed better and all that. Well, as Kobe got a little bit older and you, you got to understand Kobe was 
at this point, 20, 21, he's still a kid. He's 20, and it's, you know, so then he starts getting to 22 and 23, and all of a sudden, you know, he's looking at Shaquille O'Neal, and he's like, what, you know, like, he started resisting that, because in his eyes, look, I show up in shape every year, Shaq plays his way into shape, uh, not necessarily ready to start the season, you know, kind of <laughs> gradually get into it. and so he started resisting that, and he didn't like it, he didn't like um, being the guy that took the brunt of the criticism while Shaq, you know, got all, got all the love. And, and that kind of started it. Um, there were other things that happened. It's just sometimes, you know, um, you just spend so much time with another person. And especially they were the two big, they were the two biggest stars in the NBA at the time on the same team playing completely different positions. Kobe being this headstrong player that he was coming into his own and growing into being Kobe Bryant dominating games dominating the ball um and so you know on the court there were there were some 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 issues as well but um you know but in spite of that tension and 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 in some cases just dislike get them on the court and they're winning championships they were the best team in the nba they played cohesively in tune respected each other on the court so you don't always have to, you know, everything doesn't have to be perfectly aligned in terms of personalities and relationships uh, or any of that type of, so look, Derek Carr is a devout Christian and, you know, he has a, you know, go like I said, go on uh, YouTube, you can find his sermons. Not every player is along those lines, right? But there's mutual respect in the, in the locker room and that's really all you can ask for. Whether you're me at, the paper that I work for, the the radio station that I work for, um, you know, whatever job you uh, do uh, in, in life, whatever job or vocation or whatever situation that you're in that involves multiple people, you're not always going to like them. But as long as you respect them, you're not always going to agree with their lifestyle. You're not going to always agree with, you know, some of the choices that they make in life. But as long as when I, when you're there from eight to whatever and doing your job, everybody respects each other. Um, then you're always going to, you're generally going to be uh, okay. You're in the huddle with Vinny Bonsir, brought to you by Tequila Nevada. Interact with the show. Text Vinny at 69187 or tweet at him at Vinny Bonsignor. This is In the Huddle with Raiders beat writer Vinny Bonsignor on Raider Nation Radio 920 AM. Uh, we had we've had a lot of injuries, you know, up front, and yeah. uh, the the bad thing is is those guys were hurt. The good thing is is the guys that are coming now have played a lot of football for us. You know, it's not like I'm looking face to face with brand new guys who I've never played with. You know, I, I'm still I still got Colton Miller, I got Richie Incognito, got Andre who I've played games with, I got uh, Denzel Good who's a phenomenal player, and then Alex who yeah he's a rookie, but. We'll just let time tell and let him let his play do the talking. Right, we'll, we'll circle back we'll, to him in one second. But go ahead, we'll, we'll go back to him. But uh, but but when I get in that huddle and I see them at practice and I watch them work, it's not it's not anything where I'm like I don't know these guys. You know, uh, who uh, do we have a chance? You know, as the quarterback would think, right? Or am I going to have to be running all over the place making plays? Which if that's what we have to do, that's what we have to do. But with Andre, he's uh, he's someone that our, our our organization's been excited about for three years now, you know, and and for him to have this opportunity, I mean, he got to learn from the best center, you know, in the NFL, 
and he got the opportunity to watch him and learn and, uh, you know, take in. And he did, you know, he would sit there and he would listen. He would learn. He, he would gravitate towards Rodney because he knew that his day would come at some point. And well, here we are, you know, we knew it would come sometime. You just never know when, right. But we're here now and I'm very excited for him. I mean, we got Nick Martin also, you know, yeah. Nick, Nick was someone who has played a lot of football, super smart, super tough, a uh, heck of a player. And uh, I'm excited about him too. I mean, these, these two guys, uh, again, one thing about Coach Gruden is he's going to watch the film and he's going to see who's tough and he's going to see who will, not who will, not who only can block, but who wants to block, right? And uh, I think he's found, found a group of guys that he likes in those positions. That's Derek Carr uh, on the Chris Collinsworth uh, podcast, DraftKings uh, podcast, earlier this week, shedding some light on his, from his perspective, on the Raiders' rebuilt, quote-unquote, uh, offensive line. And I think the key thing, one of the key things that he said, and I've been uh, trying to stress this uh, in my writing, I cover the Raiders for the Las Vegas Review Journal. Always go check out the work over there. You can download the app, Vegas Nation, um, or just you know key it up on the computer, VegasNation.com. But um, when you really think about this offensive line last year, um, because of the injuries, because of having to mix and match as as, as as much as the Raiders did last year to cover for the injuries, to say that they're replacing an entire offensive line or making these massive changes, yes and no. Because of those injuries, the, the, that offensive line was not the offensive line that anyone envisioned going into last year, right? Trent Brown played four games. Richie Incognito played two games. Those are your, your starting right tackle, your starting left guard. Boom, out for the balance of the season. So when you talk about Alex Leatherwood, the rookie and uh, from Alabama, who's taken over at right tackle, he's not taken over for Trent Brown. He's taken over for Trent Brown's backup, who happened to be Sam Young, who he himself had trouble getting through games um, without getting hurt. Sam Young is back. He might be the, the, the backup, but Alex Leatherwood is going to be the starting right tackle. Is it a loss to lose Rodney Hudson and Gabe Jackson? No question about it. But does that mean that they are irreplaceable? Heck no. No. Seen it way too many times uh, in the NFL, in pro sports, where, and this is where development comes into play. This is where scouting comes into play. This is where experience comes into play. Tom Cable, John Gruden, Mike Mayock, the Raiders general manager, you know, you get to a point where, okay, for whatever reason, uh, and money I'm sure played a big role in this, uh, we've talked about it, how that offensive line was the most expensive offensive line in the NFL last year. It got all of five snaps together, the starting unit, the projected starting unit. So they did not get what they paid for whatsoever. And with Colton Miller's contract coming up and other holes uh, elsewhere in the, uh, you know, along the, in the team on the roster, the Raiders decided, look, maybe it's better to bring it down a little bit in terms of the pay, get a little bit younger in the process, and then take that money that was paying, you know, Colton or excuse me, uh, Trent Brown and, and Rodney and, 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 and Gabe and divert it elsewhere, including to Colton Miller, who uh, signed his new contract extension. You can make that decision much easier 
even though there's some pain involved, losing Rodney Hudson in a perfect world, you don't want to lose Rodney Hudson. You want to hold on to him as long as possible. Same with Gabe Jackson. But if you're comfortable, what makes it more comfortable, I should say, is the time that they put into Andre James and the understanding of what he was doing in practice, what he was doing in the classroom. Uh, Derek just talked about it. His his shrewdness in sizing, you know, uh, saddling up to Rodney Hudson, I'm sure on a daily basis to pick his brain, to talk to him. And I'm sure Rodney Hudson understood this is my successor. (laughs) That's pretty obvious. That's, that's where this is all headed, but Rodney was going to be the giving person that he is and, and, and share everything that he knew with Andre James. That's how that sometimes works. And that's the beauty of professional sports when you can get it like that. Um, But, the, the point being is while Andre James can't possibly be Rodney Hudson, he just hasn't had the time to show that that doesn't mean he can't be an adequate to excellent replacement for Rodney Hudson. And the Raiders obviously saw enough in Andre uh, James behind the scenes. Derek included Derek saw uh, everything that the Raiders, you know, coaching staff and decision makers were seeing. He'll be fine. He's ready to go. It's time to time to give him uh, the shot. It happens. You see it all the time. How many times have you have you have you thought to yourself, man? I wonder what happened to that guy. You know, it just seemed like yesterday that guy was the middle linebacker and playing great, and now you got this guy that's playing great too. Like what? It it just seems like, and that's partly because of the salary cap, uh, the way things are structured in the NFL. It it, it happens like that. It's very rare where somebody begins and ends their career, you know, with the same team, uh, with free agency, with the way um, the salary cap works and guys get to the end of their contracts. Maybe it's the rookie contract and they're, they're due, you know, a, a, a big payday or a, a, a raise. And the, the current team is like, Man, we don't want to lose you, but geez, don't want to spend that money at that position either. And, you know, we've got a guy right behind you that we feel pretty good about. Um, We're just going to shake hands and say, thanks for the service. See you down the road. It just happens a lot like that. And the key to it is drafting, developing, finding talent, and continually behind that, the, the, the scenes, developing guys that eventually are going to be able to graduate to starting positions, which make it, makes it easier uh, to move on from veteran players that everybody likes and respects. And that's where the Raiders feel they are with Andre James, and they feel they, uh, where they feel they are with Denzel Good and perhaps John Simpson, the second-year player from Clemson, uh, who also will be fighting for that guard spot. And don't rule out either Nick Martin. That dude has some guard in his repertoire, and he might be just too good of a darn player if you know, obviously he and Andre uh, are competing for that center job, it looks like it's going to go to Andre James. But Nick Martin's a heck of a football player. Don't be surprised if he figures out a way to, to get on the field. Uh, if he's the best guard option, um, then then so be it. Best players play. I just want to say thanks uh, to everyone that uh, listened today, uh, everyone that that joined us. Um, 
always a pleasure talking Raider football, talking the NFL uh, with you guys. I want to say thanks to Devon Cotton uh, back at home base, making it sound good. Uh, you know, I always uh, appreciate that. I want to say thanks uh, to uh, to George Sururi from Pro Football Focus. Uh, really interesting conversation about their evaluations of quarterbacks and their forecasts for the top 10 quarterbacks next year. Derek Carr is in that 8 to 13 range. Fair enough. Totally fair enough. And I think that's good enough to get the Raiders to the Super Bowl if they put the right team uh, around him. We're going to be back at it tomorrow, 4 to 6 p.m. in the huddle, brought to you by Tequila in Bajador. Check you guys out tomorrow.